Welcome to the Working Together podcast. I'm your host, Stefan Morales, thinker, maker, doer behind Working Together, a burgeoning hub of can-do and know-how inspired to explore who we are and how we can work together better. I'm fascinated by all the ingredients that you need to really make something happen, to really engage a system and the groups of people within it. And so, on this podcast, you'll hear a lot of stories from the people, projects, businesses, campaigns, communities, and so on, who are striving for a more sustainable and progressive world. I call them the archipelagos of a possible future. You'll hear their trials and tribulations, their reflections, their lessons learned, and hopefully you'll walk away with some actionable advice to start your own archipelago. Because what the world needs more than anything right now is more archipelagos of a possible future. So have a listen and join me. There's an analogy that a colleague of mine, Ross Chapman, uses that I love, which is really approaching, in North America, approaching urban planning much more like an old-growth forest. We don't need the fast growth. We, yes, we need housing, but we need housing that's much more sophisticated and, compli- and, 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 uh, and uh, kind of coexists like an old-growth forest. You know, we don't need fast growth, and we don't need things to be only of one nature. In this episode of the Working Together podcast, I have a conversation with Jake Fry of Small Works Studios, a laneway housing construction company based in Vancouver, British Columbia. Uh, and Jake also happens to be uh, a founder of a nonprofit and advocacy organization called Small Housing BC, which uh, advocates on behalf of the notion that cities and communities within this province in particular. Um, need to think about the different kinds of policy tools and approaches that they could take to their planning uh, to develop more uh, diverse forms of housing. So, Jake, thank you so much for uh, joining me for the Working Together podcast um, to talk about your work with both the company that you're doing, Small Works BC, as well as Small Homes or Small Housing BC, which is yeah. kind of the more advocacy umbrella that you guys have. Um, and how I like to start all the conversations that I have with folks is to get a sense of your backstory, kind of how you came to the work that you're doing right now, right? Um, both in your company, but also with the advocacy work that you guys have been doing and the mm-hmm. amazing conference that I went to uh, just last week, which was super interesting. So I'd, I'd love to hear kind of how you got involved in small housing as a thing. Yeah, I would say, well, I mean... You know, beautiful buildings and architecture and those little tucked away places have always, since a kid, been an interest to me. And so I had, in regards to specifically my work in Vancouver, I'd moved here um, with my wife in 2000. She's from Vancouver, I was from out east, and had wanted to undertake this, doing something a little different. I always had a background in carpentry and that was always my skilled trade. Oh, nice. um, and after kind of getting to lay the land for a couple of years um, and working as a finished carpenter in some pretty, you know, grandiose, for lack of term, homes um, that were both kind of, you know, quite attractive and a beautiful and kind of appalling all at the same time, you know, with right. 10, 14,000 square foot homes for yeah. two or three people. and And, you know, it would just seem... This always kind of really became this kind of push and pull around. It was kind of like you have all these resources going into so few. It's always... It seems like excessive. 
Well, no, no, excessive, but it's always, it, this an emotional thing always rubbed me the wrong way, right, you yeah. know, and, and to be a participant in that um, was great because it was really interesting to, to do good work, but it was also like, man, I just, it was depressing, you know, every day was depressing. And I can remember quite, um, you know, quite, quite uh, poignantly looking out a window one day and, you know, very nice woman who was going to live there and her four-year-old daughter was there and I was, this is like the fifth bathroom I'm putting crown molding in and just kind of looking at the window and going, wow, this kid coming in looking at this very generous three or four piece bathroom, which was going to be this four year old's bathroom. And, 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 and I was going, wow, there's only one child in this family. And yet there's probably eight bathrooms in this house, you know, and, and this, I said, this has got to be something different. And I looked out and there was a very lovely leafy tree ridden laneway. And I was going, well, you could have so many little houses down there and, you know, you everyone would have housing opportunity. And, mm-hmm. and I was just basically, I, you know, ostensibly put down my tools the next day and started the company. Which and now it's that's going back about 15 years, and that's small works. And so what we do in small works is we spend a lot of time advocating for um, um, making little houses in people's backyards. And so we've probably built about 200 of those homes. They range in size from 600 to 1,000 square feet. Um, my initial thought they were going to be very modest little cottages of three or 400 square feet, but the housing problem is so acute mm-hmm. in Vancouver and the needs are so more significant. The houses have grown a little bit more of what I had initially anticipated that they would be, but not, nonetheless, they're, they're great and they're little and they're meeting the needs that I hope they'd meet and uh, so I'm very happy with mm-hmm. that. And um, because of that, I continue to um, you know, put a lot of energy into making the company better and better and, and being more and more efficient and creating more options for different types of homes that are like that. But um, with regards to the conference and my kind of more public advocacy work, I kind of learned fairly on that once I got the Laneway House Company up and going, if I continued to sort of push for more things like that through the umbrella of the company, um, it kind of lost the poignancy, the poignancy that I had hope to have, which is really, this is a, a, an action of public advocacy, not mm-hmm. just a commercial endeavor. Right. So it was out of that transaction or that, that reflection that uh, a colleague of mine, Bob Ransford, you know, had came up with this idea, well, why don't we start a not-for-profit? And then we can throw all our efforts into that without necessarily um, having it tainted, having it colored with the fact that, you know, you also participate in the activity of building these, right? Mm-hmm. You, you can just solely pursue the idea of the more, um, uh, you know, the public voice, reaching out and, and being very poignant, you know, po- pointing out how this can really benefit communities without it seems self-serving. Right? And it seems also, too, uh, that you can do it in a way that's beyond just the, the laneway housing as, as a, as a yeah. concept, because yeah. there's a lot of other... Um, Types yeah. of housing, and maybe you could speak to yeah. some of that aspect. Well, well sure, and, and so often what we've done, and probably the last three years, we did a few publications, did a few studies, and they were great, and you know we took a lot of pride in them. But we built up a lot of um, kind of knowledge and muscle power in that process of the early part of our non-for-profit work. Um, this as we began to really call and learn and start to create mm-hmm. some original content. And it was out of that process that going back about two and a half years ago, we got a grant 
um, which had us doing or had me specifically doing sort of a public speaking um, throughout the throughout the province, you know, in about twenty different, twenty five different cities, I guess, okay. in the end. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and in that, what we did, one of our first studies was to look at, you know, what were the ten different or 10 best or more successful, for that mm. is the way to put it, the 10 most successful um, forms that we've seen with, yeah. the, with smaller forms of housing um, in North America. And what became really, um, what I like to focus on, it's never this one thing. It's not like going out there and going, oh, in this community you should do townhouses, and in this community you should do coach houses or lane houses, and here you should do micro-suites. It's much more diverse than that and I think there's an analogy that a colleague of mine Ross Chapman uses that I love which is really approaching in North America approaching urban planning much more like an old growth forest right and and so his metaphor and I talked about it a little bit is at the conference is that you know you know here we are most of our communities in the west anywhere you know not much older than 10 decades old when we think of that kind of the current city development in the sense of that you know sort of European influenced and you come in and you cut down you just raise the you raise the land yeah. that you're going to that you're going to build on and then you then you put in these monocrops you know like you would in a forestry project of you know you're going to put in something that grows fast grows straight you know and you're going to be able to cut it down quickly and our housing has been approached like that for really since certainly you know since the since the, well what I would argue for all of the, the last century into this one and, and here we are where the communities aren't like that anymore. We don't need the fast growth. We, yes, we need housing, but we need housing that's much more sophisticated accomplished, and, 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 uh, and uh, kind of coexists like an old growth forest. You know, we don't need fast growth and we don't need things to be only of one nature. We need multiple things that are, that are, yeah, multiple things that are happening concurrent to one another, that are independent and, and inter, interlaced with one another. And, and it's much more like that thicket of a healthy forest that we want to see as opposed to uh, something that's so industrial and regimented, you know? So what is standing in the way of realizing that, that kind of vision of a more, um, you know, like an ecosystem almost of housing forms and, and living and working forms? Yeah, I, I think, it's, to be candid, it, it's really a very... It, it, there's three or four things that drive the resistance. I think at the core, though, I think it is the complex or normality, you know, in the sense that we become so uh, acutely entrenched in a, in a pattern. And even when that pattern's broken uh, a little bit, we don't see the change, and, you know. And what we're proposing is something that's much more widespread. Uh, it's fairly subtle. But what happens is that you also have a regulatory body that's so heavily influenced and, and, um, and it's very, it's the core of its very being is around a very protective, regimented approach to what things are going to be. Um, I mean, I think it's a very simple solution to step away from that. And I think that same, that same um, workforce and that same perspective can be shifted this ever so subtly and it would make a tremendous difference. But that shift hasn't happened. I mean, we have a shift within the population where people want a very different type of housing and need a whole bunch of different type of housing than a deep front yard and a, and mm -hmm. a medium-sized house and a big backyard. Um, 
and uh, and and we don't need to make that full country house on every city block. Yes, you know, thinking yeah. of a, a lot of our suburban areas. Um, and and what where that kind of lies in um, is that we have we have we have citizens who want who need a different type of housing, pretty cute in, in, in BC, throughout BC, and even mm-hmm. more so in the mainland. We have politicians who want to deliver on um, their, you know, laudable goals of creating that type of housing. But then we have this bureaucratic, um, you know, both at planning and staff level in most municipalities who aren't, who are well-intending, but they have no tools to kind of deal with that. And, and they're trying to figure out how to get these round pegs through their very prescribed square holes. Right. Um, and so what one thing that we really talk about, uh, and we've yet to really have a full um, time to kind of really research it, but you know, at the core, what we really need to do is to start to focus on outcomes. So right now we have outcomes that focus on regular prescribed kind of regulatory practices or, or standards for lack of a better term and what we really need to do is to start to look at hey what does a community need what are the key key things that we want to see at the end of the day and then be far more dynamic in how that's going to get delivered and so projects planning building projects need to be more focused on what is the outcome right how does this affect our sustainability how does this do affordability for us how does this create the housing that we need for the income that people have you know those kind of drivers and we need to be able to do that at a very grassroots level so someone needs to be able to come who currently owns a house or owns a corner lot or they own two rental properties and they need to be able to go to the city with an idea and go hey look i can deliver these three things if you let me do this and then that has to be that's, that has to be what's judged and regulated. You know, of course, we want safety standards and so forth. But, um, and we need all the, the, you know, things for public safety and health have to be in place. But notwithstanding that prescribed kind of, hey, this is this zone and you can only do this. You know, you can only grow alder trees in this part of, you know, the forest. We have to abandon that and go, hey, we can put in a couple of these other species and that's going to work better for the whole forest, right? And, and right. we need to, um, it's just to play with that metaphor. I mean, that's, that's what's missing. That's what missing is uh, uh, an adjudicative um, overlay that looks at outcomes over process. So would you be saying, when you say an adjudicative overlay, do you mean something similar to the Ontario Municipal Board, as it used to be, something like that? Or, I, I or not acquaint, I'm not acquainted with that, but, you know, specific example. But um, I think it, what we need is we need cities to be very clear what their priorities are right. and what their targets are. Yeah. And then people need to be able to come to them at that, you know, obviously you're going to have developers doing towers and, you, you know, that core, core rental and sustainable, not sustainable, so affordable housing projects and shelters. I mean, all those sort of things that have to have government yeah, yeah. involvement and money. But we have a huge resource in land that's already currently delivering housing, but it's delivering housing in, a, in something that was thought of you know, prior to the Second World War and, and has been built upon since the Second World War in a very fairly uniform manner. Um, in that clear cut. Yeah, yeah. We need to have this. We need to have that. You know, we need that sea change where we're going to go, no, look, we're going to look at this and we're going to look at what people need for housing and we're going to deliver it in a far more needs-based manner, you know. Um, 
I mean, we have two challenges here, right? Like if we could, there is an argument to develop cities um, where housing tenure is secure, where there's a really low threshold to getting good rental and that rental is quite affordable in, 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 um, in along the lines to people's income. You know, I mean, ideally we could house people where they'd only need, say, 20% of their income to afford housing and, that, and that housing would be secure for the lifespan of their family or, you know, and um, uh, from, you know, day one right through to the, our last days. I mean, that would be ideal, but that requires um, government owning a lot of land and controlling the housing. And we don't have this in this country, and nor do we have kind of a history of that in North America of mm -hmm. any substantive way. So homes will still become something of security and equity and will require a, maybe a slightly larger percentage of our income, but should still be attainable for that you know, 30, 35% of our income. And the prices have to be able to be affordable for people at mean, mean or better. And we need that array of housing. And right now what we have is we have we don't have enough housing. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and we have housing that falls far short of being de to deliver what people need in the sense of, hey, I make eighty thousand dollars a year, or my family makes, you know, seventy-five thousand dollars a year, and we need to be able. We don't have that housing, right? And and when it, when people like that can generally afford, you know, and cities can afford rental, but then that rental is not really secure, and they're quite vulnerable, and they have no way to build up equity, you know. So there are housing models that have existed throughout. In North America, but they're very isolated. Right. Like they're a little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit there. Yeah, yeah. And what we need to do is take the best practices of that and it has have it as, as an as of right. You know, as a homeowner, um, and it's a very libertarian kind of con, but as a homeowner, I should be able to do whatever the heck I want on my property. Um, and who cares if I have two families living with me and one of those families own part of the property and the other one rents or you know right. and, and and we need that mix of stuff. so it, it, yeah in a way you're saying it, it would be best if um you know individual owners as they are now would be able to have more kind of uh, authority over the decisions they can yeah. make on their land kind of well you know and again so i'll use vancouver it's a great example and so far as like i know the market here really intimately but you know we have roughly seventy five thousand. what have been called single-family homes. Mm -hmm. Now, currently, there's a good percentage of those, well, there's at least one rental unit on the property. But if what if we could do, say, oh, we'll keep two, two, your two, your potential two rental properties and give you two ownership or three ownership on the same piece of land, and we're not going to require too much more density. You know, if you had 20% uptake, there's about you know, roughly 18 to 24% of your housing needs met with no investment on the part of the city or any sort of upper uh, um, level of, um, of um, impact in the communities other than I would argue this, the communities would be stronger, there'd be more opportunities for local, you know, small local businesses, you know, if we look at those communities that are slightly more dense, but still very sort of very family oriented, like Strathcona, um, or or you know areas. Uh, there's some nice areas around uh, around the market and um, New Westminster. I mean, we look at those communities; they're not suffering from having just a little bit more density, and they feel very much like a family community with, you know, and they're quite strong, right? They're really strong communities with locals, you know. Corner stores and little markets. Strathcona back in the day. Yeah, so For many years. Favorite yeah, neighborhood. Exactly, and 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 so, 
that's what we're looking you know and if we made that switch in these fairly uh, looking at BC wide now if we made that kind of focus of our development more focused on the, these walkable um, intimate uh, neighborhoods that have a you know are far less kind of uh, isolated from one another you know and and, and create slightly stronger communities we could do that in a way that required no you know no potential funding no other than sort of this private resources um, would uh, and, and that would actually start to really strengthen these communities, right? And, and more importantly, or as equally importantly, also deliver the type of housing topologies that we need, right? And I think that's that's the charm of what we're really trying to get out and promote. And I don't think we get a lot of pushback. Now, I'm going to bring it back to your initial question. I think what we do is we just don't have a mechanism how to start to focus that end goal and that all decisions lead to that end goal. I think what we have is we're, we're continuing to try and take oh, this is what we do in this town, and well, this is different than what we want to do in this town, so how do we get from here to there, right? And I think the focus on the outcome um, is the way forward. You know? Interesting, yeah. And it seems like something like the design charade approach, which I, I talked with, uh, with uh, Patrick Condon uh, yeah. for the podcast many episodes ago, but we talked about design charades yeah. as a way to involve the community more in the decision making and get them yeah get them on this on 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 this uh on this planning bandwagon a bit more so that they can more clearly define those outcomes that they need do you see something like that as a well possible yeah mechanism? i mean i think this is where i come to one is that people have to understand if the neighborhoods change right and everyone's always worried about changes these are not wholesale changes right they're going to happen incrementally and 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 things will move forward the laneway house program had a lot of pushback initially, but has become quite embraced and quite a normal housing form, and most in most cases quite liked. You know, in Vancouver, um, I think there's the one thing that we often miss in in, in that um, discussion when we have with what we'll call the general public around housing development is, uh, from my perspective, is that we don't see it through the lens of the opportunity for that individual. It's more like what I don't want to happen beside me as opposed to what I can do for myself and my family and my situation. And I think um, that is, that's, that's what we have to do. We have to be taking more of a, a perspective that this, these, are, these initiatives and these new types of housing forms are far more to do with presenting people with options that they can take, it, for lack of a better term, take advantage of. Right, yeah, so pre presenting existing homeowners, the idea in that light, and then on the other hand also uh, articulating some of the benefits of this, and we, we've already talked about a few of these, like affordability, right, Yeah. is a key one, being able to have access to housing if you mm -hmm. have yeah. seventy five or $80,000 income a year. Um, and there's another one that we haven't talked too much a bit about, which is uh, kind of the sustainability or the environmental angle to this. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering... Where does where does the small house and the laneway house and these other existing forms, uh, you know, like uh, co-housing, cottages, and pocket neighborhoods, yeah. things like that, how do they how do they solve that problem or help solve that problem? Of well, I think the word help is the best. I mean, look, I mean, the, the truth is, I mean, if we could just take every house and throw up a few walls and um, create more living units without building anything other than just some modification inside the house, really, that's the most sustainable right. thing we could possibly do. And that's, we can't lose sight of that. Right? Mm -hmm. and, and retaining character homes or just adding to them. Um, I think we have to be very conscientious too. I think there's a lot of movement um, 
and, and yeah. around sustainability, you know, to, to use a big one, where we start to really focus on building envelopes and what goes into buildings. And we're always looking for, I think it's because of our consumptive approaches, but we tend to look for these addition things to fix things, right? I'm going to do this and this and this. I'm going to make the best building envelope and it's going to be really... But we, I, sometimes I think we lose sight of the location of where homes is. So again, speaking again in a very BC biased or lower mainland biased, it's a fairly tempered zone. Um, so we have to, uh, I think, make choices around what we do. You know, what we've done studies, and it turns out, you know, a lot of the practices that ask for more robust in building envelopes actually add to the carbon footprint of a laneway house. Mm. You know, even when we look at the long-term performance mm. over you know, several decades. Um, and um, notwithstanding that, if we could build some row houses, freehold row houses, they would be the easiest and most affordable thing to do as passive homes, and that would be great, you know? And so the, 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 I, I don't know if there's one thing I would draw about small houses immediately connecting with sustainability, um, I think, but I would go back to the point, the most sustainable thing is not to take anything down. Right. You know, um, and I think we, we all lose sight of that, myself included. Um, and then the next one is that, you know, we're making decisions that are appropriate with an overall picture. I mean, this has always been my potential, um, it's a lot more work, but when we, we, but when we really want to look at how we make things as well as how they perform. Right. In our assessment, right? So like in terms of passive house, for instance, yeah, versus yeah. just like a conventional... Yeah, exactly. Conventional and, and, or like a laneway house. If you built a laneway house on piers and you had a very relatively light building envelope, you would actually create the building as the smallest footprint around the overall footprint when you look right. at building, how it's built, like uh, and the energy used to build it, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. And, and then the needs to uh, performance, right? So... Um, you know, I, I think what we probably the more important part of small housing to sustainability is better land use. Right? You know, most a lot of people who build big, big high rises will talk about, oh no, this is the most sustainable building because you know you're you're you know you're using all this localized mm -hmm. energy. It's very contained, and there's some I'm sure there is some validity to that argument. I think the other thing though we uh, that goes hand in glove with that is being able to use. Um, land more appropriately and be able to create common space for people, create things that are very humane, um, but to share that kind of common wealth of front yards and laneways and, you know, yeah. those those are the things I think are, from my perspective, are the, the strong argument uh, around the value set that you get with smaller homes, which is that you have something that connects you immediately every day with nature. And if you take a, a right approach about how you're designing it and how you're putting it beside one another and, you know, how they fit into the, the immediate neighborhood and the larger neighborhood, with those decisions, I think you, you create a, a, a community that's sustainable. Mm -hmm. So in your, in your perspective, it's really, it is about the sustainable community, like the neighborhood as being a more active, vibrant engaged space with yeah. lots of different family yeah. types yeah. and sizes and all yeah. of this. I mean, yeah. the type of housing we make is very inherently, in, in that neighborhood setting, it is inherently very um, alienating. Yeah. And when you are, has some, it certainly has a, uh, it puts on a pinnacle the sense of private ownership. Um, and then if you start to depopulate those neighborhoods, you, you amplify the kind of alienating 
mm -hmm. the dynamic of that. Um, so the opportunity to create some um, interaction between individuals and between the community at large um, is how we mitigate that. And also, I mean, I have two children, so just allowing for noisy children, I think, is... <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, we've, we've, we've been in uh, townhomes, uh, we haven't done a condo yet, but it's, it's just been this constant problem where if you're sharing walls or ceilings or roofs or whatever mm -hmm. with other families or other people, uh, your kids can't be kids, and that's what's so appealing, I think, about these yeah. ideas of laneway housing or cottage communities mm -hmm. and yeah, pocket yeah, neighborhoods yeah. and stuff like that. So it's super important. So um, out of all of this work that you've been doing over the past uh, decade and a half or so now almost, uh, what are some key lessons or the key lesson that you've learned as you've been trying to um, A, build these laneway houses through your business, but B, kind of advocate with the city, with other partners for a different approach? Well, the, the things I've taken away is this, uh, you know, a, a further reaffirmation, you know, or affirmation that these are, this is a, a, a very strong, you know, right-thinking um, approach. You know, I, I really wholeheartedly, I'm more committed to it as every day goes by, you know, because I see the value in it. Um, and I think as time's gone on, I've seen more and more people embracing these value sets. I mean, I think I can't, we cannot lose sight of how, you know, um, I, we, we worry about it. I think we feel helpless about it. I think we're all on some level distressed in what is happening to the environment, mm -hmm. you know, and, and it is, there is nothing that is more poignant than that. Um, and, uh, and it is, it is fundamental, you know, to the, to not just here or anywhere. I mean, it's a, it is a, it's something that we have yet to and must mobilize to deal with. Um, and, and I, I think the values that are in what we're talking about are the same values will, will help us collectively make the shift that we're going to have to make in the next 30 years. Right? Couldn't agree more. Um, it's about sufficiency, what's sufficient and what, what, what is enough in terms of space mm -hmm. then makes other decisions about how much I'm going to be putting into that space, yeah. purchasing to fill that space and so yeah, on yeah. and so forth, which yeah. has ripple effects. Okay, so um, I'm going to end now with, with a few rapid round questions here about, about you as an archipelago yeah uh, in in this possible future sure that we're hoping to create right? right right more more neighborhoods like this more places yeah. like this um, what do you see as other archipelagos out there that inspire you that you're kind of striving to work towards whether in Canada or globally or yeah I, I think the um, certainly you know the issues around you know kind of urban farming you know um, th there are things I feel very strong about that, that there's that uh, I think um, certainly human rights, you know, and, and, and I mean, I've been very, um, I think it's so important what we've seen, you know, in, in the States with that kind of the Me Too movement, you know, I really see that as, as, as you know, unless there's equality for all, there's, there's no equality, right? Um, those are, those are, you know, the kind of the two immediate things that really jump to me. I mean, I think there's lots of things that are happening, um, 
I think there those uh, those very subtle movements of people wanting less, sort of do less, work mm -hmm. less. You know, mm -hmm. I think those are really important. Um, and and I guess the other things I see are these great opportunities that we have yet to embrace. You know, like you know the opportunity for us to say close down the forestry sector, but employ those people to start to rebuild salmon streams. You know, and you see little examples of that. You hear it. Um, you know, the, the opportunity to, to really throw some money behind cleaning up the oceans, you know, to, mm -hmm. to really reallocate um, that day-to-day -day labor. Um, and, I, you know, and it's a strange thing, but because the world has become so populous now on that political front, mm -hmm. um, and because that is a system that can only fail, you know, um, it's, 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 you know, this is a true optimist comment. Yeah. yeah. That, that, that's inspiring insofar because you know the pendulum's going to swing the other way. And if it becomes acute, it's going to become even more acute in the other direction, right? And I think that's, it's that collective work that's going to, you know, pull us out of the gutter, right? So. Interesting. So you kind of mentioned it there a little bit, um, but, you know, we've got these archipelagos. So what's the ocean for you? You know, there's these islands of sustainability and possibility. Yeah. Uh, what's the ocean? Is it an opportunity or is it a challenge or what? What is it? It's a partner. You know, I don't know. I don't know how to put it better than that. Mm. You know, uh, it is. It is the. It's the other side. It's the other thing that you care for that ends up caring for you, right? Interesting. Yeah, I like that. Deep. <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, <laughs> no, it, it is deep. It, it makes me think of all sorts of things, like uh, you know, like you were just saying, this populist movement. And the thing I think that scares a lot of us is is the, the kind of fascist overtones and things like that. It's like, oh, you know, um, in many respects, that is the enemy. Uh, but then there's also this there's this awareness that reconciliation is how that whole thing yeah. played out back yeah. in the in the last century, right? Mm -hmm. We went through hell. Yeah. Our, you know, our grandparents did. And, and then yeah. we came out the other side and, uh, you know, people still had to live together. Yeah. Kind of thing, right? So, but, but in so doing, I mean, it's not an yeah. easy process, but there is a partnership aspect to all of yeah. that. Yeah. And I just, you know, I guess, you know, it, this is a, an optimist, you know, kind of scenario, but it is the fact that we end up drawing together. I mean, that, that grows because of, you know, it's, it always does. It grows because of fear and, and, mm -hmm. and sense of powerlessness, power, powerlessness. And, um, but we're, you know, the, the, the thing is there's great, op there's fantastic opportunities to re-mobilize, you know, with the right-minded mm -hmm. governments. Um, and, and I think, and I think leaders that can leaders that can really capture people's imagination, then then we can mobilize in that kind of, and we're going to have to in that kind of, it's it's a horrible analogy, but in that kind of those images we had as kids of the Second World War, where everyone was like doing rubber drives or doing this yeah, or doing that, yeah. and we need that kind of approach. But we can, we know we can, you know, we can collectively we can do we it. We can do it. I'm I'm with you on that too, and I think projects like yours are uh, really important because. Um, they're they're helping to knit together that social contract in a sense, you know, mm -hmm. that somebody could work hard and still have a home or something yeah, like this, yeah. right? And still have that sense of security, mm -hmm. which uh, if people don't have that sense of security, then they yeah. become preyed upon by yeah. 
folks who want to use that for yeah. other purposes. Their own, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So thank you so oh, much, no Jake. It's pretty nice meeting you. Yeah. Likewise, Thanks. yes. I, I really appreciate your time and uh, and yeah, I look forward to maybe future conversations. Yeah. Well, at least for that. You can find the resources mentioned during this episode at togetherworking.com slash the working together podcast, all one word. You can support the show by going to patreon.com slash working together. Your monthly contributions help make the show a sustainable thing. And the best part about it is that you get to join a global community of fellow change makers, an online community of practice, so to speak, for making awesome stuff happen in your communities. Because I don't just want you to listen to these stories. I want you to make your own. Join me.